Well, good afternoon, everybody, and thank you so much for joining our life sciences session this afternoon. I'm Lita Sands, and I'm the head of business development for life sciences for AWS. And I've been a part of the life sciences industry since 2000, most of that time working for companies like Pfizer and Novartis, helping them to accelerate their commercial model transformation, and then moving into real-world evidence and clinical trial modernization. And in this role I have now, I'm really privileged to be able to work with many of you in the industry to understand what your goals are for transformation and then drive up the right AWS solutions, programs, or partners to help accelerate you meeting those goals. And uh, I have to say that it is just a wonderful time to be in our industry. We're really entering into this golden age of innovation when we're finally curing cancers that we just never thought possible, even as recently as a few years ago, or rare diseases. And this is a chart showing the number of drug approvals in the FDA and in Europe. And you can see the pace of innovation is really strong. And last year, we had a number of really wonderful new molecular entities approved in the area of immuno-oncology and CAR-T and the first digital pill. However, we have some dark clouds on the horizon. And in a report that uh, an analysis that Deloitte has been running since 2011, analyzing the ROI and R&D for large cap pharma, the ROI has been dropping precipitously from 10.1% just a few years ago to 3.2% last year. And I think a large driver of that is the fact that we're still using tools that were created for an entirely different era, the era of blockbuster drugs, the era of mass production. But moving into a world of precision medicine, we need to take a very, very different approach. So what I'm going to share with you today are stories of customers who are doing just that today in the AWS cloud. They're taking advantage of the speed, innovation, and agility to really rethink these processes and to create digital tools and processes to enable a world of precision medicine to flourish. The healthcare and life science vertical has been around for five years now. And this is a small selection of the customers that we have. Uh, we have a very vibrant customer and partner ecosystem that are uh, working on AWS today, and we've probably run every single meaningful use case there is across the value chain. And today, if you saw our press release, we're really proud to announce that Amgen, uh, one of our, I believe, our most innovative biopharma companies out there, announced that they're all in on the AWS cloud because of our ability to help them accelerate innovation, reduce costs, and generate the insights that they need to be able to speed life-saving drugs to patients. Some of our very early use cases were in helping to identify areas, especially around precision medicine, that were being halted because of the limitations of on-prem data centers, especially when you're talking about really large files that are generated by genome sequencing. So our early uh, use cases were with Illumina, DNA Nexus, Ancestry and Me, I'm sorry, Ancestry, 23andMe. So as a result to the, today, the lion's share of all genomics workloads that are carried in the cloud are carried on AWS, and we have now 93 services that are HIPAA eligible. So at AWS, we like to tell stories through our customers, and I'll be telling you stories about how customers have modernized across the value chain, and I'm really thrilled also to have three clients who will be joining me on stage today from companies like Knowledgent and Novodordisk, as well as Roche's Navify. But the other benefit of having such a large and vibrant uh, and uh, having so much scale on the customer side is we have some of the world's leading software providers on AWS today all in. And we're thrilled to have company, companies like Viva and Medidata, um, Medidata, SAP, companies that are really important to life sciences who are running on AWS. 
And with SAP, you know, we have a lot of customers who are carrying validated workloads in the cloud today. We recently announced a number of other tools to help accelerate that. So we now have quick starts available for SAP HANA, as well as templates to help you be able to do IQ, OQ, and PQ. So let's start talking about what's going on out there that's so interesting in the area of early phase R&D. And there are two big trends that are really modernizing how we do drug discovery today. You know, I was kind of shocked to learn that the, um, the success rate of a molecule going from phase one to regulatory approval is about 10%. And certainly we can do better than that. So the two trends that are really impacting things are the use of artificial intelligence, as well as the ability to support global collaboration around the world of scientists who have access to massive scale databases. Numerate's a really good example of the first one. They're a company that's been with us since 2007, and they focus on helping to accelerate small molecule discovery. They have taken an approach with their D4 platform where they link together computer science, statistics, as well as traditional medicinal chemistry to be able to do hit rate optimization. They have a library now that spends in the tens of billions of molecules, and they have thousands of models that they've generated, and apparently they use tens of CPU centuries to do all of this. When I talked to their CTO recently about why AWS, he said it's because AWS provides us with an infinite amount of compute to do this. And because with a lot of their analysis, they're actually just kind of modeling that molecule for 20 minutes, that ephemeral compute on spot instance really helps them run this, these jobs in a very efficient way. So to give you an example of their impact, recently they worked with drug maker Servier, who is having difficulty in a very tricky area of heart disease. And with them, they were able to scan 128 million compounds, which resulted in a throughput of 69 viable molecules to take through drug discovery. If they had, and they did that in 12 months. If they had done that with a traditional on-prem data center, they estimated it would have taken five times the cost, probably five years or more, and the models would not, have, the molecules would not have had the same de-risking that these do, because they had so much rigorous analysis that went behind them. So as a result, today, Numerate has been part of over 30 drug development programs. And most recently, uh, last year, they signed a deal with Takeda Global to be able to take this into their gastroenterology, CNS, and oncology drug development space. Another great example of a global collaboration to help accelerate precision medicine is with Baylor and DNA Nexus and the CHARGE project. CHARGE stands for Cohorts in Heart and Aging Research and Genetic Epidemiology. And it was the largest scientific consortia to really focus on a disease state that impacts, it's accountable for one-third of all fatalities around the globe. Baylor was one of five academic institutions. There were 300 scientists in total. And Baylor's Human Genome Sequencing Center was responsible for doing the sequencing of about 5,000 genomes and uh, 10,000 exomes. And they were also responsible for generating the variant files, too. But when they did the calculations, they realized they had about a month to do this. Um, and it was going to be generating about 430 terabytes of data to do so. Taking a look at their existing on-prem data center, they realize we have a choice. We either have to quadruple the size of the data center or cancel everything for the next month. So neither of these were feasible options. They turned to DNA Nexus and AWS to solve this. So DNA Nexus built platform as a service that sat on top of this, enabled Baylor to do all of this sequencing in the cloud, generating these 430 terabytes of data, as well as an additional one petabyte of data to be hosted and stored and analyzed by these scientists around the world. Not only were they able to complete this in time, they actually were able to accelerate it six times faster. At one point, they were lighting up uh, 21,000 cores, 
which was the largest genomics analysis in the world. In total, I think they ran three million core computing to do this, and they did it with zero capital investment. So these are just some insights into what's possible in the cloud to help accelerate and work with these massive scale databases and help accelerate scientific discovery around the, the globe in a secure way. And we're really, really thrilled to have our uh, partnership with Accenture and Merck, and we're rolling out the Accenture Research Life Science Cloud, which is under development now. It's a consortium-based approach designed to help enterprises be able to scale these ideas in a managed service. As one of my clients said, when we try to attract um, researchers from university today, it's like they're walking into the Stone Age coming into my lab. If I have a tool like this, they're going to be able to plug and play leading edge tools seamlessly. It's also going to be able to enable enterprises to spin up these global collaborations and pull them down when they're done with them. So we're really, really excited about that. Because what's coming next is we're seeing drug discovery really changing. And uh, as you look at real estate trends, you can see there's less square footage that's being uh, created and assigned to the wet lab. It's more about computational chemistry. What's really good is that researchers can now store their lab notebooks up in the cloud. That means we can help accelerate this collaboration and, more importantly, make it easier for other scientists to replicate those experiments. We're seeing protocol and laminate cards being abstracted away to protocol as code. So with IoT being attached to this equipment, like our partners at uh, TetraScience and Thermo Fisher are doing, that information can be spun up to the cloud and analyzed. So what does all this mean? Scientists get to spend more time thinking about drug discovery and less time mining the kitchen. So let's talk about what's happening in clinical trials. It's taking way too long for clinical trials today, six to seven years. How many times have we heard about them being shuttered because they can't find enough patients? What are you going to do when maybe there's 50 people in the entire world who match the genetic profile you're looking for for a rare disease? So there are a number of companies that are really pushing into this area to help accelerate transformation. And I think with 21st century cures and the recognition that our hold on information is changing. You know, we used to have the definitive answer about how drugs performed in human studies with traditional uh, clinical trials, but now with real-world evidence, it's out in the wild. Payers and providers or others are starting to capture this data. So we all have to get smart and understand that evidence is a continuum. It just doesn't stop at the end of the clinical trial and disappear. So companies like Evidation Health realized early on the importance of being able to, um, to uh, help support pragmatic trials. And they also understood the power of consumer wearables and that behavioral data, when attached to claims, can give us incredible insights into disease progression, somebody's about to get sick, into how uh, patients are performing on meds, how they're recovering. And they created a real-world database that companies can tap into to do recruiting. Um, so more and more, we're going to talk a little bit about how digital therapeutics are really taking off. There was a company out in California, a healthcare provider called Tuio Health, and they had created a pediatric asthma um, application, and they wanted to be able to take it into clinical trials. If they had gone the traditional route and gone into medical institutions to do this, they estimated it would take about a year to get the number of patients they needed. Working with Evidation Health, they tapped into their patient opt-in database and got it done in two weeks. So this is an example of how we're able to transform at the speed of light in areas that are safe for us to experiment in. Medidata is a partner that we're really proud of. They're one of the first cloud-based software-as-a-service companies to be able to support clinical trials, and now they have um, so much data available. Over 3,000 clinical trials are in Medidata's um, enterprise data store today, MEDS. And they understand the power of synthetic control arm, because especially if you're talking about somebody who has cancer, 
do you really want that patient enrolled into a futile standard of care or um, some placebo effect that's not going to help them? And if it's so hard to find people even for the experimental arm, how are we going to find people for these placebo arms? And last year, they were able to publish at ASCO one of the first applications of a synthetic control arm for a sponsor who had a drug in phase 1B for acute myeloid leukemia. Medidata was able to take three algorithms against their data set to come up with three cuts at showing how they had patients who would meet the criteria for a comparator arm. And the smallest of those was 10 times greater than the experimental arm. They understood that there was no way the historic literature would have supported that, and every single one of those arms approved a go decision and green-lighted it to move forward. So techniques like this can help reduce that 90% failure rate, uh, as well as what Numerate's doing, so that the money that we're investing in drug portfolios and R&D, the ROI hopefully will start to go up again, right? All of us were really, really proud to be part of the Clinical Trials Transformation Initiative, it's a public-private partnership between Duke and the FDA, and they gave us guidelines for the first time of the use of mobile technologies in clinical trials. And this is really, really important. Obviously, it helps us get more readings in the home more frequently so we can perhaps shorten the length of the trial, but we're finding out things that are even more interesting. Earlier this year, with a study that was funded by Roche, they published the results of using mobile application entry as, long, as well as paper-based entry for patients who had Parkinson's disease. And what they found is that the mobile app was able to detect abnormalities and sensitivities in the information that was being entered that showed the disease was progressing. The paper could not identify that. So it's helping us understand that maybe we shouldn't be defining diseases through paper or analog tools. Maybe instead of one Parkinson's disease, there's 15 different types. And sensitive tools like mobile devices are going to help us dramatically advance our understanding as well as dramatically enhance the patient experience. So what's next? Well, with me, please join me in welcoming to the stage the chief data scientist for knowledge and Ari Yokoby, who's going to talk about the Intelligent Trial Planner. Ari? Thank you, Lita. Thanks for joining. So tell us, what is this intelligent trial planning tool that you have, and why did you decide to build it? All right, let me address why we decided to build it, and then we'll go into what it is. Terrific. So uh, one of the key things in drug de discovery and drug development is uh, determining the protocol feasibility mm -hmm. of a study uh, before a pharmaceutical company decides to go out and launch a trial and green light the protocol that they want to run. Uh, so... In order to determine protocol feasibility the way it's traditionally approached in, in the pharma business's uh, design team creates a protocol, they define it. And once the protocol is defined, they give it to the research team who, can, who goes out and looks at benchmarks. And by benchmark, I mean studies that are similar to the study and the protocol they want to run. And use that benchmark as a foundation to determine if that protocol is feasible, meaning are we going to find enough people out there to complete the trial successfully within the targeted time frame. Uh, now, um, when they use that benchmark, there is, uh, there is a bit of a challenge with that. And what we have seen is, one, it's hard to find the exact benchmark because one study is so different than the other and there's so many moving variables. And the second thing is, even when you find the exact benchmark, mm -hmm. it usually misses the temporal element. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean the trial today and the landscape today is very different than what it was five years ago when that benchmark was run, or 10 years ago, for that matter. 
So what the research team has to do then is they have to go through medical journals, they have to pull the data from clinicaltrials.gov and analyze that data to make adjustments mm -hmm. to the feasibility to rate of recruitment as they expect based on all of that moving variables, the new landscape, the competitive landscape. Um, and, and that process is one very time consuming. It takes weeks to come up with the, if the protocol is feasible, what the rate of recruitment is that they can expect and anticipate and, um, and by the time they're done with their analysis, and on, 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 a, on a good one, it's usually about, say, a few weeks, not months, um, they, um, the protocol design team has already made another change. Yeah. And then the researchers have to go at it again. So we looked at it and we asked, right, there has to be a better way, uh, given the data we have available to us, given the technology we have available to us, and given the, the, the power of the cloud we have available to us. Uh, so, so what we did was we partnered with one of our life sciences clients, a large life sciences company, and uh, we asked, can we use machine learning to predict the rate of recruitment, predict protocol feasibility? And um, once we proved that, can we improve on it? And can we do better than the status quo? And, and we created a series of experiments with them, mm -hmm. and we kept building on the success of each experiment and with that, we have arrived. We have what we call intelligent trial planning tool. Awesome. So, so that's what we have. And tell us a little bit about the technology and why did you decide to build it on AWS? Yeah, so uh, the entire technology, the entire platform for the application is entirely end-to-end -end AWS. And um, we have used everything from S3 buckets to store data to store models. We have leveraged Glue for data transformation. There's, there was a lot of data transformation, data cleansing tasks we had to do before we could model that data out. Uh, then uh, we brought in SageMaker for machine learning, Comprehend to process the unstructured, uh, Athena for visualizations, and um, and on the on on the, on the front end we used DynamoDB to store the data that the application consumed, the front end web application consumed. Uh, as a matter of fact, I have done a 10-minute video on with with AWS on this is my architecture. So if anyone here is interested, uh, just go on YouTube and say intelligent trial planning uh, architecture, and you will see the first one or the second video there is my video where I go through the entire architecture end-to-end -end and how we leverage AWS and why AWS was the right platform. Awesome. And uh, so tell me, we have some results up here. Can you talk about these results? Yeah. So uh, one, the first thing is accuracy was significantly better than the traditional way. In most cases, when we measured, what we saw was we were three times better then the, the accuracy you would get by looking at the benchmarks and making adjustments based on the tribal knowledge. Uh, the second thing is the results are real time. Mm. So you don't have to wait weeks to get to if your protocol is feasible or not. And it has a web-based component to it where you can enter your inclusion, exclusion, your protocol, and you can run through it in real time. So what that does is that enables the design team to do it, put the power back in their hands where they can define the protocol, run it, and see what the rate of recruitment can be at a study level and then at the country level. So um, instead of, uh, and it goes to the point you made earlier, right? Instead of uh, waiting for weeks, 
to figure out if the protocol is feasible or not and not having confidence in it, they can now iterate in real time mm -hmm. more frequently so they can have more confidence in the protocol that they go out with. That's awesome. I, how sophisticated do you have to be to use this? That's, that's a great question. Uh, so traditionally, uh, a job that would require trial planning analysis or protocol feasibility analysis would require years of experience. As you can imagine, you cannot just use a benchmark. You need to make adjustments to the benchmark, and those adjustments come from experience. So you have to see, you have seen enough trials to, to know uh, what type of adjustments you need to make and how much you need to adjust. But with the, with the tool, all of that intelligence, all of that knowledge, and the training has already been built into the machine learning model. So, so you don't have to be the, the research analyst who has 10 years of experience uh, doing feasibility analysis. You can, as long as you know the protocol, you fill the protocol in, it will tell you what the rate of recruitment will be at the study and the country level and even explore further down the site. Very cool. Yeah. Do you, are you thinking about what's next on the roadmap? What kind of features are you going to be adding to this? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, so we're growing, and because of the success, we have sort of we've been evolving more rapidly. Uh, so there are a few things on the roadmap. One, we're expanding the indications we're going after, with the focus on uh, first focus initially on oncology, mm -hmm. but within oncology, the therapeutic indications that we're focusing on, we're expanding on that. Uh, the second is we are also increasing the number of data sources and the type of data sources we're ingesting in and feeding the model. And, and part of it is, and the reason behind it is, uh, we want to get the, uh, the recommendation down to the site and investigator level. So the protocol design team, when they put the protocol, they can not only uh, see if it's feasible or not, but also get the recommendation from a machine learning model on what are the optimal number of sites and where those sites are that they need to go to to run that protocol most efficiently. Wonderful. So, so, so that's the roadmap. How do clients get the Intelligent Trial Planner? So, so, so they can, uh, in order for them to get the Intelligent Trial Planning, uh, if they were focused on the indication we already have built in, um, we can get them going right away. Uh, we can get them going within 24 hours. Uh, if they uh, want to focus on indications that we do not have currently, uh, we have developed a process that's a very much uh, an assembly line-based approach on how we onboard new indication, and that process takes about eight to 12 weeks. So, so that's, that's how uh, they can get on it. Uh, in order to access it, they can, if you go on Google, you can um, just type intelligent trial planning, we're the first link, and you can visit knowledgeand.com and we're there as well. And we're also, we also have some exciting announcement coming up in Andy Jassy's keynote tomorrow. So, so look out for that as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having Excellent. me. You're welcome. So what I love about the Intelligent Trial Planner is that it democratizes knowledge within enterprises. I was talking with a customer recently who was telling me because their inclusion-exclusion criteria was not constructed well, they had sites that weren't performing well. And the knee-jerk reaction would have been, well, let's kind of beat them up to recruit more, or let's spend millions and open up more sites. But they did a similar analysis and more of a POC, and what they discovered is there was a value in there that's just off by a tenth of a percent that was causing most patients to be screened out. So tools like this will literally save you millions and millions of dollars, and they'll take that knowledge out of the one expert you have, one super user, and democratize it so that everybody can participate in this type of a service.
So certainly next, I think, virtual trials from home are really moving forward. I'm really proud today. I'm one of a few people here wearing the Apple Series uh, 4, Apple Watch 4, which is the first time we have a consumer wearable that's been cleared by the FDA to be a medical class 2 device. And apparently looking forward to having the app in a few weeks, hopefully, that will also provide the capability of a single lead ECG. Uh, when you start to think about where the consumer experience is going with wearables, and our ability to be able to integrate them in with uh, other forms of data, it really gets very exciting about how we can get much more refined in our approach and redefine what we mean by precision medicine. So let's talk about manufacturing. There's a huge opportunity in manufacturing to start driving at costs and getting that ROI back up. Apparently, according to a number of estimates, we have as much as $50 billion a year in waste because of plant inefficiencies or shutdown. And uh, two years ago, Merck joined us on stage to talk about the approach that they were taking to enable validated workloads in the cloud for their Merck Managed Cloud. And they talked about the processes they put in place, the SOPs, the training of their employees, so they can spend less time filling out paper forms that get put into a binder and instead let the AWS Cloud put in place continuous compliance, monitoring, and alerts. And instead, they take those cycles and they put them toward innovation. Because the other really interesting thing is that our data historians have been quietly capturing all of this great information in the background, but 70% of it is dark. So we're really excited when OSI, OSI Soft Pi announced their Pi connector this year on AWS. They're used by 23 out of 25 of the top pharma, and that allows us to go into that data historian and start to unleash the value of that batch time series data to get insight. 47 Lining is another one of our partners who has put a connector in place too to enable this analysis. Because once you free up that data, that's when partners like Bigfinit come to play. Bigfinit has been working on applying artificial intelligence and machine learning to manufacturing problems for quite some time. And with their big engine platform, what they're able to do is analyze all this data to come up with recommendations. And one example for you is we had a manufacturer who was, their factory was uh, getting so many fines because it was putting too many volatile organic compounds or VOCs up into the environment. And they were really getting pretty close in danger to being shut down. Additionally, when they did cool the uh, engines down in the factory, when they had a VOC problem, it used a tremendous amount of electricity, so the carbon footprint was ridiculous. Well, working with a big engine platform, they tapped into that data from the data historians. Two months of training up their models with the raw data. By the third month, they were ready to put it into production. No VOC problems, and their electricity usage was 17% of what it had been before. That's how quickly these companies can move to help you make it usable. So to give us another tangible example in this place, please join me in welcoming to the stage the Chief Technology Architect of Novo Nordisk, Casper Larsen. Casper, thanks Thank for you. joining. Thank you, Lisa. So you've got another great story with BigFinit, yes. but a little bit bigger stakes on the table. So tell us about your role and how you got involved in modernizing manufacturing. Yeah. My role in Novo Nordisk is trying to find out when the technology is available and right for us to harvest, to basically perform better, produce more. Just a little side note, I'm from manufacturing. I'm an engineer, so it's more the wrenches and the screwdrivers and the hammers I come in with. But it's still, I also think we have a great potential in this area. Yeah. So we were on a journey that we got a new CEO coming in. His task was to ensure that we increased our performance by at least 5% over two years or three years in our existing manufacturing facilities. Um, that's a hard one, yeah. <laughs> very hard one. 
On the other hand, we also got a new CIO coming in saying, why don't you go out and explore if there's any technology out there, try play with it, see if you can get some, some value out of that so we can increase that performance. Um, I, I put up a picture here of an old car that where a tree has grown into. It reminds me about walking some of our facilities. And I guess a lot of you guys from Pharma, you know that you have these old facilities and you're like, okay, what do we do with it? They do not have data available for you. They do, because with partners like AWS and Bigfinit, we could easily tap into the data of legacy equipment. We could easily create a data platform that we could start analyzing on. Mm. So that's what we did. Awesome. So tell us about the type of metrics you were looking to achieve and, and which ones were pretty easy to get through technology. And maybe here, let me give you this clicker too. Oh, to yeah, okay. You tell your story. Yeah. yeah, and I have to stand over here. Okay. <laughs> These are six very typical waste drivers in manufacturing. All of them can be tackled with new technology. The ones we focused on initially with Bigfinit was the in-process scrap, the unplanned downtime, and the batch change over time. And I do have some examples that I want to show you on this uh, presentation as well. So it gives you some other metrics into what you're trying to achieve. The first example I want to go through is an old, when I say old, I mean 15 to 20 year old assembly line we have in a Brazilian manufacturing facility, almost out in the rainforest. <laughs> it's still running DOS. Surprise? There's this DOS component in that system. Anyway, um, but what we did, we had been able, been able to pull out some signals, simple signals for how much is it scrapping, how much is it stopping to, in order to calculate some performance. Those signals we could now, with an easy connector from Bigfinit, include, uh, make sure that we got the data streamed into an AWS cloud environment. We were also able to develop some screens, uh, some dashboards that the operators could see, and we were able to create some data logic and some, I wouldn't say machine learning yet, but just visualizing data was a big step for a lot of these people. On the side note, the paper you see to the, your right side of the screen, that's what they did initially. They updated data, put them into Excel, printed out the files, went out to the manufacturer and put them up on the whiteboard. They did maybe two or three times a day just to see how efficient the line was and to give the operator some feedback on how good they were in operating the line. So what we did is that we built the dashboards that we could bring out into the control room or into the manufacturing rooms to give the operators an idea of how good they were performing. It, it's not just OEE. We're actually looking here at how well such a line is, I would say, how well every single substation on such a line is producing or scrapping, or how, the opposite of scrapping, actually. <laughs> so we measure the scraps coming in, and we measure the small stops. And we give an indicator over here. IoT is not working. IoT is not working. Just some other example of the picture. But we give an indication of what is actually impacting your performance right now. Is it the number of scraps, or is it the number of stops you have on the line, or is it the manual stop, so that they can see what they're working with. Another little thing here is that we also calculated how much time do they have if they still want to stay on target to fix an issue. So we give them a clear indication right away. If you have an issue, if you have, right here it says 15 minutes, so they know now they have 15 minutes to fix something, and they will still be on their production target. Another example was that we put up some, and this is actually for the maintenance guys running out on the lines. A yellow and a red field. I mean, right now they're not yellow and red here, but two boxes, if something pops up in the red one, they are approaching 
a severe failure and they will soon stop the line and the performance will go down. They get this information 20, 30 minutes ahead of that component will actually break and fail. So now they know, combined with the other uh, number that we gave them, oh, I can't fix that one. I'll maybe just slow down the line and run a little bit, little bit more with that and a slower pace. And then I will fix it next time I have a batch changeover. That gave us a significant more stable OEE or efficiency. Just some other examples of control charts that we built. By the way, it, it's not rocket science to build uh, these dashboards. But it, it takes some skills also. But the, the good thing about this technology is we could take the data, ingest it into all the AWS components. Honestly, I don't know what's behind this dashboard, but I know it's AWS. <laughs> and all the things that Ari was talking about just before. And we could build those dashboards quickly, get it out on the shop floor. Some of the things that was actually surprising was the operators fighting with the managers on what should be on the dashboard. So they ended up saying, who, I want this on my phone. Yeah. That's another thing. This was scalable to an, an, a, a tablet or any other device without me having to do additional development. So the managers wanted an iPhone so they could see how badly the operations were performing, and the operators wanted to know if it was uh, where the actual issues was. Another example. <laughs> a lot of the old pharma and legacy facilities, they have equipment that is not even wired up for picking up the sensors. Yes, we have control valves. Yes, we have pumps and motors, and we can measure anything on those. But we are not good at addressing the, I call them the secondary measurements. Vibration, surroundings, temperatures, maybe even adding a little infrared camera so you can see the temperature of the oil inside a gearbox or a motor. So we started a project where we wanted to avoid unplanned downtime on a very critical unit. And we found out that we have, we, we didn't find out, we actually analyzed that we needed around 500 new sensors, vibration, cameras, certain types of cameras. Uh, and we mounted that in such a, in this cabinet and we routed it out to the facility. Oh, sorry, we routed out to the equipment and we started to pick up data within six to eight weeks from we said, okay, we want to buy this. Of course, you have to go and buy all these industrial grade instruments and sensors. And then we were actually mounted on this cabinet. Eight weeks later, data is pumping into the cloud. We're starting to see results already. Of course, we don't have enough data yet to do all the machine learning, but that's the next goal here. But just getting the visibility into the equipment has already saved one critical maintenance because we, just based on looking at the screens, found out that there was a pump that was, not, uh, that was close to failing. Yeah, that was just some examples. So already, just by changing the cycle of how often people have access to information yeah. and using visualization tools, you've already made a significant impact yes. on plan efficiency. Yes. So it sounds like the next step in your roadmap is now, once you amass enough data from this, starting to apply artificial intelligence and seeing how much further you can take it then in increasing plan efficiency, correct? That is correct. Wonderful. Yeah. Excellent. Any other lessons, or if customers here want to learn more from you, what's the best way to engage? Of course, I can be reached on all the social medias you will find out there. Um, you could also find my name uh, through the Bigfinit uh, contacts. It's easy. I will be in a lot of the sessions. I do think there is an IoT for regulated industries yep. coming up later today. I will be there as well. Wonderful. I will be here after this meeting. 
you're working pretty hard this week. I am. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us to tell your you story. So again, Big Engine, it's a platform that can democratize the ability to start to do these analysis and start to get some impact very quickly. As Casper mentioned, being able to put IoT sensors in the plant helped to overcome maybe where you do have some antiquated machinery that doesn't even have easy access to the data historian. So what's coming next? Well, certainly, Podular Manufacturing. Uh, Pfizer was one of the companies to help pioneer this. They can be created in less than 12 months. They help companies go from batch to continuous manufacturing. What's really cool is it can be shipped anywhere around the globe. And uh, that means that you can also attach IoT into the cloud to be able to monitor what's happening there and also to keep a, a, a finger on your pulse to make sure that there's not going to be any product safety issues or recalls as well as enable virtual collaborations. So what does this all mean for the commercial model? It is dramatically changing. And we're now in a world of volume to value. So we tell our life science customers to go to the table. You need to change what you have uh, when you start talking to payers and providers. Because more and more, data is a new form of currency. Who are the right patients for this disease state? What do you understand about the treatment pathway? We know more about that treatment pathway than anybody else, I would say. And then what are the digital therapeutics that you're bringing with you to help enhance that customer experience? This is a take on the Amazon's virtuous flywheel that I've applied to life sciences. And I firmly believe that if you come to the table with these things, we're all going to be able to help reduce the cost of care and increase access for our medication. And let me give you some examples of this. One of the things that's really important to remember is that when it comes to this new world of real-world evidence, having, again, a managed service that helps democratize the analysis across your business is going to be really important. You can't hire enough data scientists who have this skill. And that's why we're so proud to partner with Deloitte's Converge Health Minor platform, which is now being used by Novartis and Amgen and Takeda and Celgene and most recently Merck. And they love this because any business analyst can go on here and very quickly be able to define cohorts that make sense, do the analysis, and then be able to go to the table with the evidence that they need to be able to get access to medication. And you may have seen another press release yesterday that announced the Patient Connection Hub. And that enables us to have an integration layer in there so that we can connect with mobile IoT in healthcare. Now, why that's important is because twofold. Digital therapeutics are having a real impact with a feedback loop, and they're generating the, the data that we need to demonstrate reaching endpoints when we come to adjudicating these value-based contracts. And there are a number of partners that are on AWS today with digital therapeutics. I'm just going to um, highlight a few of them for you today. But even in the most stubborn disease states like diabetes and hypertension, we're seeing the needle moving. Amada Health was one of one companies that was selected uh, in the country to launch the diabetes program in a digital fashion. It's a combination of a connected scale with a mobile app that has uh, access to a personal health coach, as well as a community of people who look like them to help them in their personalized care goals. They've had 11 published reviews. They're really at scale. Almost 200,000 patients are in this, and they've demonstrated a reduction in the risk of type 2 diabetes, and they're saving the healthcare system money, about $2,000 per patient. They had an interview with one patient. She was a third-generation diabetic, and she was able to reverse the risk. That's how powerful these things are. I mentioned to you before FDA approved the first digital medicine, chip on a pill. You may have heard of Proteus. Proteus is a company that 
put, they're able to put a sensor uh, that's about the size of a, a rice, or even smaller, onto medication, and when you swallow it, it emits very accurate biometric signals to a patch that's on your body that then goes to a mobile phone. When they did analysis and clinical trials with patients who were refractory to blood me pressure medication, they just couldn't get their hypertension under control. Um, they took them into a 12-week study. Patients who had Proteus, versus those that don't, the ones that had the regular medications were at about 50% of their goal at the end of 12 weeks. People on Proteus, 98%. The digital feedback loop is incredibly real. So imagine if you have two drugs and you're a healthcare provider and you're trying to figure out which one to prescribe. You're always going to go for the one with the digital therapeutic because the outcomes are going to be better. So Proteus, um, in working with people that are staffers in the FDA as well as patient advocacy group, got so much feedback about the need to help patients who have mental diseases like schizophrenia and bipolar um, with access to this type of information. Because if you forget to take your medication, that spiral could lead to death. And also, physicians are always trying to titrate the right combination of drugs for these patients. So that's what some of the insights into OTSCA coming out was with the first digital pill. And that's with Abilify MySight that launched last year. They're going into uh, designing a patient experience now with Magellan Healthcare, and they've decided to invest another $80 million into Proteus to start to develop other types of CNS applications. And then finally, Paratherapeutics was the first digital therapy app that was approved by the FDA to be used in patients that are treating substance abuse, opioid abuse, um, addiction. And in clinical trials and six-month studies, they demonstrated the ability for uh, patients on that app that's been prescribed by a, a doctor to have better abstinence rates than those that did not. And it was very exciting to see Novartis announce a partnership with them to help differentiate their generics portfolio uh, with Sandoz so it can be prescribed with a medication. Again, imagine the impact that's happening there. So these are just a few exciting things uh, that I wanted to share with you about how the commercial model is changing. And to really underscore this idea of being better partners with the healthcare system and showing the impact we can have together, what I'd like to do now is please join me in welcoming to the stage the chief architect of Roche Diagnostics Navify, Todd Klingler, to share his journey. Todd, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining me. So your platform is Navify. What is Navify, and how is it that a life science company decided to build something like this? Sure. So uh, the Navify portfolio of decision support uh, tools is, a, is hosted on Amazon, mm -hmm. and it's a set of tools, workflow and decision support tools, uh, that collect information about patients from a variety of sources in care environments and provide that information to care teams that need to coordinate in managing um, patients. Um, the first tool, a workflow solution that's been released, is Navify Tumor Board, and this specifically uh, looks at uh, a situation where cancer patients uh, may go in front of a tumor board where a physician, an oncologist, nurses, pathologists, radiologists may get together and discuss that patient's um, situation and, what, and decide on what the optimal treatment is. Uh, that requires you to extract data from EMR, pathology, radiology, uh, systems that are traditionally silos within a, in a healthcare environment, and then provide that information to a cross-functional team to make decisions based upon that. Now, why is Roche yeah. uh, moving into this area? Um, Roche, you probably know as a pharmaceutical company, maybe less so as a diagnostics company. Uh, we've been around 120 years uh, and have continuously innovated from um, 
biologics to um, some of the first targeted treatments, um, PCR on the diagnostic side, sequencing. Um, and information has obviously become the newest uh, tool for delivering medicine. A uh, perfect example was uh, what was shown before with the diabetes uh, product. Um, Roche was, uh, has uh, quite a, a, a big diabetes business. It's no longer just um, strips and devices to measure those things. So um, Roche thinks about how to provide optimal uh, treatments to patients using that patient's um, individual data at the right time. Awesome. Get our IoT working here again. So how do you see, then, clinical decision-making evolving over time? Yeah, so clinical decision-making um, over, uh, evolving over time, um, it will become more data-driven um, and also more team-based. So the days where your single physician sees you, looks at a few single analyte test results, evaluates you and makes decisions are becoming rarer and rarer. Even in your primary care, you see teams of healthcare providers um, managing your diagnoses and treatments over time. Um, in complicated diseases, that's only becoming more important. Um, we talked about uh, the data, the large data that comes from things like genomic tests and imaging tests. Um, that needs to be integrated uh, and, and brought together, uh, again, to make um, optimal decisions by teams. Lastly, I think um, adding in tools that will be based on, or that are based on, some of the emerging machine uh, learning and AI technologies uh, is going to be a rapidly increasing feature in this area. What other advice would you give to life sciences companies as they start to, as precision medicine becomes more prevalent? Right, right. Yeah. So precision medicine has become, or traditionally means, giving the right treatment based on usually some targeted test, often genomic, uh, either expression-based or DNA-based. Um, most cancer drugs, if not all, being developed right now fit into that category. Um, we like to think of healthcare now uh, in the sense of personalized healthcare, and that's really a generalization of the precision medicine concept of what dr the right drug at the right time. Uh, personalized healthcare means using, instead of a, a, a single test, a lot of information or what appropriate information about a patient can be brought to bear for a decision, and then providing that to, uh, to, the, to the physician, the treating physician, or maybe back to the patient to make better decisions there. Wonderful. And as you think about next year, what's next for you in Navify? What do you think you're going to be focusing on in 2019? So, right. So Tumor Board is the first Navify workflow solution that's, uh, that's out. There will be a number of additional workflow and decision support tools that will, um, that will be launched next year, um, some based upon newer diagnostic modalities like uh, sequencing-based approaches. Others expanding across um, or outside of the, the tumor board phase of cancer treatment and to provide um, tools along the way, um, of, along the journey of a cancer patient. Um, lastly, I've told you about the workflow solutions, but the decision support really comes in when you can um, look at that patient's information and provide additional tools to provide specific um, recommendations for that patient, either for managing, treating, or diagnosing that patient. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Sure. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent.
So we just did a real round-the-world tour about companies that are doing things today to help modernize across the value chain and increase the ROI again. And one of my favorite quotes is from William Gibson, who says, the future is here, it's just not evenly distributed. So hopefully what we've did, done is given you a chance of what the future looks like, because as we move into 2019, um, we're really privileged. We have both healthcare and life sciences that work very closely together. I always tell my counterpart that your customers are my customers' customers. So we share a lot of information about what's essential with healthcare providers and payers. And we also help to identify um, providers who want to accelerate the patient engagement, to bring it to a new level, to tap into some of the things that we've been talking about today. So next year really is going to be focused on how do we um, make that interoperability seamless, that's where platforms like Converge Health Minor really help because if you do go to the table and you sign a value-based contract, that's a place that's going to help adjudicate that when you meet your endpoints. I think the other thing to look out for is uh, Deloitte again also announced a consortium around blockchain. And why that's interesting is it provides a venue. So if you have a patient on digital therapeutic, it could be that they want to make that information available for research. And blockchain not only keeps an immutable record of that as well as their opt-in, but it also provides us the ability to give something back to that patient. It could be in lower cost of drugs or, or help with their copay. So that's another area that we're really excited about too. Now, as you go through the rest of reInvent this week, I just wanted to point out to you a few topics that may be of interest for you along these lines. You know, we talk a lot about building IoT devices for regulated industries. Um, certainly, again, with our specific needs in healthcare and life sciences, I think that this session is a really important one to go to. Um, security around IoT is also incredibly important for us, so we'll be talking about some of that there. Um, as Normal as I think carrying validated workloads in the cloud is today, there's still a lot of guidance and best practices and tips and documentation we're providing with our clients. So please, if you're interested in that, go to the Chalk Talk tomorrow on architecting for GXP compliance and life sciences. And then on Wednesday also, we'll have, as we were talking about today, use of artificial intelligence and machine learning in healthcare and life sciences is accelerating rapidly. It's the only way to analyze these complex data sets that we're coming up with. So we're going to have another session on that tomorrow. And what I love about some of the things that Todd was speaking about is, you know, more and more these tools are important, not to replace physicians and decision making, but to augment the intelligence. And we're moving from the physician to care teams. So understanding how the ecosystem is changing and how you need to align your teams to be able to better interface with that, I think is a really um, important and profound change that's happening in our environment and uh, something to really think about. So hopefully I have given you uh, with my, want to thank my uh, fellow customers and partners here for joining me today and hopefully we've given you things to think about so as you go through the rest of the week you can think about what's next for you. So thank you so much for coming. Really appreciate it.